I am that uh, logistical mistake that Colton referenced. Um, our sermon text is the gospel reading for today, which is out of Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Give your ear to the gospel of God. Then Peter came to him, that is Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and that it cuts, that it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and that it reveals your mercy and your grace to us. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit you would do these things through your word as we consider today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. As we begin today, I'd like for each of you to look up and down the pew that you're sitting in for a moment. See those smiling faces of your family and uh, your friends, and then take a moment, look around the sanctuary, see your church family, the people in covenant with you who love you and know you. And know that these people in your heart of hearts recognize that these are the people who will sin against you the most this year. <laughs> and these are also the people that you will sin against the most this year, too. Some of you have heard me do this before. This is usually my uh, New Year's cheer that I spread. That sin within families, within churches, within a fallen world is a reality that we all have to deal with. 
That little exercise also reminds us that these are the people that you are most responsible for forgiving as well. And it's good to remember because in particular, our text today is actually at the tail end of a block of teaching that Jesus gives about church life. In the context, the larger context of Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about the humility needed to enter the kingdom, of holiness of life, of seeking out those who stray, the need to constantly confront and the need to constantly repent and forgive one another. Repent and forgive the people up and down the pews and up and down the aisles. And so Peter, as he hears Jesus talk about church life and what it's going to entail, uh, it sounds like a lot of work to him. There's going to need to be a lot of repenting and a lot of forgiving going on. And that leads him to ask his question that began our text in verse 21. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Peter's asking a question that we've all asked from time to time. One that you might be asking today. How extensive, Jesus, is my requirement to forgive? How extensive must I forgive others? How often, how completely do I need to forgive them? And as we begin running through your mind and perhaps through Peter's, uh, it could be great sins. Sins that are big. Sins with consequences that tend to dominate your life and the lives of others for a really long time. Or more likely, Peter's just thinking about what a large group of people the church is going to be and what C.S. Lewis called the incessant provocations of daily life. To keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? It's the question he asks in his essay on forgiveness. Jesus gives a shocking answer. He said in verse 22, unlimited forgiveness, 70 times seven. You know, don't get too hung up on on the numbers. Peter's not really asking for a set limit. And Jesus in 70 times seven is not giving a much higher limit, you know, 490 times. He's saying full and free and complete forgiveness. And so to help us understand how and why we must forgive this way, he tells Peter a parable about forgiveness. And as we walk through it, we're going to see the definition of forgiveness, the difficulty of forgiveness, the resources for forgiveness, and the necessity for it. For those of you that like outlines, the definition of forgiveness, the difficulty of it, resources for it, and the necessity to do it. First, a definition for forgiveness. In response to this question that Peter has, Jesus tells a story about a king who forgives the debts of one of his servants. He says this in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, Every commentator points out the unrealistic nature of this sum. At the time, a a working man, an average man, might 
have earned a talent in a year's time. So when he gives the amount that this servant owes, we're talking about 10,000 years worth of wages. So take your yearly wage and multiply it by 10,000. That's what this man owes. We're talking billions of dollars, no matter how much you calculate it. Some scholars want to see this man as, as maybe he's a king's governor and he's borrowing money for matters of states. But this number is so outrageous that most kings in Jesus' time would not have been able to repay this debt. So why does Jesus give such a deliberately unrealistic number? Well, the talent was the highest currency in the empire, and 10,000 is actually the greatest number in Greek for which there is a single word. It's a myriad. So Jesus says this man owes myriads of talents. It's an insurmountable debt. It's a for all intents and purposes, this is an infinite debt. And so Jesus notes in verse 25, dryly, the man was not able to pay. <laughs> you don't say he wasn't able to pay. And so his master handles the debt the same way that all debts were handled customarily in ancient societies. The master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. The obvious interpretation of the parable, and the one that Jesus gives in his key at the very end in verse 35, is that God, God is that great king, and we are the servants that owe him a debt. Now that would have been especially pointed for Peter, who asked the question, who in the time of the Lord's ministry on earth, was literally ministering with him and ministering for him. He was Jesus' servant. But you and I and everyone in the church are likewise God's people. We're his servants. But even if you are not a Christian, even if you do not claim to follow Christ, God is our creator. And that means that every day, every moment, we owe him gratitude and love, and worship, and obedience. And every moment that we fail to love him from the heart and obey him in our lives, we sin. That's what sin is. We don't give God what he's owed. We incur a debt. And Jesus says that debt is infinite. So stop for a moment. And just consider the last week. Can you think of times where you have done what God says not to do? We can all stop and think and just have in our service of at least a few times where we have done what God tells us not to do. But if we pause, perhaps even more, there are places where you could have done something that God does want you to do. And you didn't. How much more prayerful or cheerful or helpful or hopeful or honest might you have been this week? None of us are the person that we wish we were. None of us are the person that we could be. And below, lurking those sins of omission in places that many of us would rather not look are our motivations. How often 
this week, did you do what you did simply because you love God and for the love of other people? The good news of the gospel is that that debt, that infinite debt, that daily accruing debt is what God forgives us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus died on the cross to repay. And it is in God's forgiveness of us that we see what forgiveness really is. That's where we get our definition of forgiveness. And so look at the forgiveness of the king. In the person of the king, God forgives by doing four things. He brings the servant before him. He has compassion on the servant. He forgives the debt, and he releases him. He brings the servant before him. He has compassion. He forgives the debt, and he releases him. First, it says he has the man brought to him. In verse 24, it says, When he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him, and then the actual debt was named. That means forgiveness begins with truth-telling, with exposure rather than covering up or half-truths. C.S. Lewis, in that same essay on forgiveness, says this, quote, But there's all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will not hold it against you. If one was not really to blame, then there is nothing to forgive. In that sense, forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites, end quote. Many people inside the church and outside of the church struggle with Christ's teachings on forgiveness because they mistake it for excusing. Forgiveness, in, in that sense, means uh, say, not saying what the other person did was really wrong, or maybe it wasn't that bad. But what then what about, adjust, what about justice? What about accountability? But notice that the king's forgiveness begins with accounting, which is not the same thing as vengeance, but it is truth-telling. Let us think of an extreme example, but one that is more common than it ought to be. Think, for example, of a Christian woman who is being abused by her husband. Often she will agonize whether she should turn her husband into the authorities, or forgive him? What should I do? And the answer is yes. Forgiveness should begin with accounting. And in her heart, we will see her disposition, what it is supposed to be. But forgiveness begins with truth-telling to oneself and, if necessary, to proper authorities. In fact, a forgiving and loving heart is the only way to pursue accountability like that without veering off into bitter vengeance. But a forgiving and a loving heart will also not allow someone to continue in sin that is destroying themselves and other people and dishonoring God. So most sins against us aren't crimes. They're not dire situations. But we should all be able to stop and name the sin and its damages in our lives, at least to ourselves. The Bible says it's a glory to overlook an offense, and that's true. We're talking about sins that register. If you try to forgive and you find that the process is often short-circuited because you want to minimize it, you want to excuse it, you want to say it didn't happen, then you need to be able to stop and name the sin 
and the problems that it's causing in your life. If you do this calmly, in the light of day, honestly, humbly, usually you'll find, as Lewis said, there's far more in the situation to excuse than to forgive, but that part that cannot be excused is the debt. That is what you must forgive. So forgiveness begins with truth-telling, but it doesn't end with truth-telling. The next thing, it says the king had compassion on him in verse 27. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. That's a word that's used throughout Matthew of Jesus' tenderness toward the crowds, toward the ignorant, toward the sick, toward the vulnerable. It means to feel in your guts, to identify with, to understand. To have compassion means you make the conscious choice to try to understand and identify with the offender's situation, their vulnerabilities, their pains. It means asking honestly, doing the work to say, what must it be like to be them? Not in an effort to excuse, but to understand. What must it be like to experience it, to experience the consequences of their sin? What must it be like to live with the consequences of other people's sins against them? How are they vulnerable? How are they tempted? In the person of the king, God thinks of the perpetrator not simply as a villain, not simply as an orc or a monster, but a human being with his own fears and griefs. He has compassion. And next he cancels the debt. In verse 27, it says he forgave him the debt. And the king forgives the debt. This is the core of the definition of forgiveness. What happens there is that the king lets it go, which means that he absorbed the cost himself. He let the debt go, so he was the one who absorbed the cost. In the book, The Anatomy of Peace, the story is told about the Herberts, who are a dirt-poor dirt family of apple farmers in the Catskill Mountains. And the son, Lou, remembers in this story that in his entire life, up to being a teenager, his family had ever owned one vehicle, a very old red farm truck that he said, quote, rattled and coughed like a 90-year-old chain smoker. It's their only vehicle. It was so decrepit that they had to drive half off of the road so as to allow vehicles that could actually go the speed limit the ability to pass without injuring other people. All right, so it was a big deal for his family when they purchased the new car when he was 16. And Lou was eager to take that car out and show it off to his friends in town. And the day after his father brought it home, he asked if he could run some errands and be helpful around the house. All right, so he was so excited when he got behind the wheel. And then he remembered, I left my wallet in the house. And so he jumped out of the car, sprinted back to the house to get it. And when he raced back out to the car, to his horror, he realized the truck was gone. And as Lou looked and began to panic, he had the awful thought, the car might have rolled down the slope, off the driveway, and into the river. And so with his heart pounding, he ran over to the bluff and looked over the edge and saw the headlights of his father's new truck staring back at him from the river for a few moments before it sunk. 
Lou incurred a debt that he could not repay. And so he numbly walked back to his house and saw his father in the living room, facing away from him in his favorite chair, reading the newspaper. Lou simply stood quietly and struggled for words and then finally blurted out, I think I forgot to set the brake. It's in the river, Dad. The car's in the river. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And his dad sat in silence and without turning to face him, reached up and turned the newspaper and said, well, I guess you'll have to take the truck then. Lou was electrified. He recounts that he tried to leave and go run his errands, and he couldn't do it. He just, he immediately broke down and came back so that he could cry and spend time with his dad in the living room. That forgiveness changed him. His father did not make him pay money. He did not pay, make him pay emotionally. He canceled the debt. That's forgiveness. It means to let it go. But I want you to notice something in that story. That debt that Lou incurred did not disappear. Right? That truck is still gone. It's at the bottom of the river. Right? And so now his father must replace it or go without. He will have to suffer the consequences. He will have to pay the price. And this isn't the case of all situations of sin, all situations of wrongdoing, even ones that aren't physical, even ones that aren't monetary. Someone may cheat on their spouse and take away the intimacy and trust that belongs to their marriage. Or someone may slander you and diminish your reputation in the eyes of others. Forgiveness means you let it go. You eat the cost yourself. You don't run around and then run down their name to other people or freeze them out or make them pay. You will absorb that pain in yourself over time, and it's costly, and it's very difficult. It takes time. And that's why the late Tim Keller, the pastor Tim Keller, says that forgiveness is actually a form of voluntary suffering. That's the core of what it means to forgive. But finally, in verse 27, it says that he released him. He let the man go, and then he, he, let, he let the debt go, and then he lets the servant go. And the parable shows that anyone who truly forgives, as God does, is open and even desires the restoration of that relationship. Now, that's dependent on the response of the person to whom that forgiveness is given. Um, ultimately, in this parable, the servant does not repent. He does not change. And that relationship breaks down. But in the fact that he let him go shows that the king desires that. The king desires to be back in fellowship and for everything to be put right. Notice then how relational forgiveness is. Even though Jesus uses an accounting metaphor, even though money is the metaphor for this, look at how relational this is. Forgiveness is all about the holiness, joy, and restoration of the offender. Forgiveness is given not as a response to their 
repentance, and holiness, but as a means by the grace of God of enacting it in them. Let me say it again. It's not in response to their holiness, but it's a means by the grace of God of enacting it in them. It means naming the damages honestly, identifying with the one who wronged you, absorbing the cost yourself, all with the aim of affecting that heart inward change in the offender. And then it means opening up all the doors and windows outwardly to repentance so that the relationship can be restored if that person will simply walk through them. We fail to forgive the way that God does when we omit one of these steps, one of these aspects. They don't necessarily have to be in order. When we omit one of these aspects, or more often, we pit them against each other. Right? So instead, uh, we might try to minimize or excuse someone's sin in order to sort of work up compassion for them. Right? It wasn't that bad, so I don't have to feel as angry as I do. Right? Or we want to short-circuit the process and not name uh, any of the sin and just open up the door to relationship and to forgiveness so that way everything you know, outwardly looks good. Or we may say, I've accounted the sin correctly, and it is deep and it's bad, and I'll never be able to forgive them. I'll never feel warm toward them again. You see, we pit the aspects of forgiveness against one another and so fail to forgive the way that God does. We can see that for most of us, forgiveness is actually very difficult to enact, which is our second point. Real forgiveness is difficult, as I said before, because it's costly. That pardoned servant went out in verse 28. Look, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you Oh, forgiveness is hard when we're wronged because we really are owed a debt by the other person. And in order to let it go, we must voluntarily suffer. And instead, we often find it easier to try to get what we're owed by paying people back, yelling at them, making them feel bad, replaying the sin in our minds, or just hoping that something bad will happen to them. Forgiveness is difficult because it's costly, but it's also difficult because it requires humility to extend. The hundred denarii that the forgiven servant was owed isn't nothing. It's, you know, three months wages in the, in the time period. That's a decent chunk of change. But compared to what he owed the, the king, it's negligible. You can't even see it on the balance sheet. The real tragedy is that the unforgiving servant couldn't see himself in his fellow servant. He couldn't see himself in his fellow servant even though they both owed a debt, even though they both fell down and asked for patience, and they both asked for mercy. The theologian Miroslav Volf says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the offender from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. I exclude the offender from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. We don't have the humility to extend it. As you think about the people in your life that you need to forgive, do you have a good grasp of how you are both in the community of sinners, how you do the same 
things that they do. If not, you will not have the inner resources that you need to forgive the way the king does. But at root, we find that forgiveness is difficult because it requires humility to receive. The servant's debt is far, as I said before, far, far beyond his ability to pay. We will never have enough good excuses or good works to merit God's forgiveness. It will have to be completely and totally free. The servant's offer to pay the king back, be patient with me and I will pay you all, is as unrealistic as trying to earn our way into heaven with good works. To say to God, if you forgive me, I'll go to church every week. I'll try so much harder to be better is just like saying, I know I owe billions of dollars and I will pay you back. I'll send you in four or five bucks a month. No, our only hope to be received by God is astonishing free forgiveness at God's expense, which means that we have to come with open hands. It means we have to come in total humility. All of this points to the fact that forgiveness, true forgiveness, requires resources outside of ourselves to enact. So where, where can we find those? How can we have the power to do that? That's a wonderful question. I'm so glad that you asked it. It's our third point, the resources for forgiveness. In a book published shortly before he passed away, which is entitled Forgive, uh, Pastor Tim Keller identified three dimensions of forgiveness. He said there's, there's vertical forgiveness, our relationship with God. There's internal forgiveness, our disposition toward those who've wronged us. And horizontal, our granting of forgiveness or that reconciliation that we talked about with others, of giving it to other people. In his book, he says that our internal disposition and our horizontal pursuit of forgiveness is actually based on the vertical aspect. It's based on what God has done for us. And that's exactly what the king tells the servant in verse 32. He says, Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? The king extended forgiveness to the servant and then said that that king's forgiveness should have uh, that he should have based and patterned his forgiveness off of the king's forgiveness of him. Specifically, he said that the king's forgiveness should have made him a compassionate person. What that means, the real application here, if you get nothing else from the, servant, the, the sermon, the real application is this. If you want to be a compassionate and a free forgiver, you must constantly repent of your sins honestly and deeply before the Lord. If you want the resources you need to be a compassionate forgiver, you must repent of your sins honestly and deeply before the Lord. It's precisely what the Apostle Paul exhorted us in our epistle lesson today. In Ephesians 4, he said this, verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Left to ourselves, you and I are far too much like the unforgiving servant. A man 
who is a servant living by the mercy of the king, acting as a judge over his fellow servants. But when we sit in judgment of others, when we ask that they pay what they owe, are we not putting ourselves in God's place, in the king's place, in the actual judge's place? The only thing that will move your heart away from that pride is a view of the king who humbled himself to become a servant and bear judgment in your place. God doesn't sugarcoat our sin. He doesn't sugarcoat your sin. Your sin and mine is the ungrateful hatred of all that is good. It's so bad that the only thing that could pay for it was the death of God's own son. His wrath against your sin, the ones that you thought about earlier, was so awful that it made the world black at midday. But Christ was willing to come and take on human flesh to identify with you, to know your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities and your temptations, to hunger and thirst, to be identified as your sin on the cross, even though he had no sin of his own, to voluntarily suffer and take your punishment. At the cross, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting your trespasses against you. Not because he simply put them away and refused to deal with them at all, but because he paid the price himself. He paid the debt so he could release yours. And if you are in Christ, that means your debts will not be called in because Jesus has paid them for you. You are free. You're released. You can walk in the freedom in God's kingdom. And then Jesus rose and he put his spirit in you to walk out repentance and restore that communion and that fellowship and that relationship that we all desire with God. We won't forgive by trying harder. Instead, you need to meet the living God through repentance and faith and receive not an abstract pardon, not just a ledger sheet, but Christ himself, a new identity as an accepted and loved and justified child of God. And then as you commune with God, as you repent and you have your fellowship restored and you walk with him through the word and the prayer and the preaching and the singing, he will begin to subjectively work that reality in your heart and shape you so that you are instinctively compassionate, forgiving, kind, tenderhearted. Every preacher wants to end there. Amen. Good sermon. Let's go home. But this is not a feel-good story about people who receive God's forgiveness and then go out and then give that love to other people. It's a story about a man who asks for God's forgiveness and receives it in a sense and is completely unchanged by it. We need to end where Jesus does, with the necessity of forgiveness. In verse 34, he says, His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due. So my heavenly Father will also do to each of you, if you do not from his heart, each does not from his heart, forgive his brother his trespasses. The servant didn't change the way the master desired. He didn't become forgiving. And so the parable ends with him, as it says there, with the torturers. 
The horrifying aspect of this line is that the servant's debt is infinite. He's with the torturers until he pays all that he owes. How much does he owe? An infinite debt that can never be repaid. It's an obvious picture of eternal judgment in hell. And so many commentators that I read were very anxious to make Jesus' words here not about the final judgment. Because then maybe perhaps does it imply that we can earn God's forgiveness with our treatment of other people or, or perhaps God will forgive us and then, and then rescind it? No, they say this, this can't be about the final judgment. But even if we doubted the parable, Jesus says very plainly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 14, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So do we earn God's forgiveness? Is it conditional upon us meriting it by the way that we live our lives? No, I don't think that's what Jesus says. I don't think that's what the parable teaches. Remember, the king first extended mercy to the servant. But the servant's actions show that he did not receive it, at least not in a way that makes a difference, as Jesus says at the end of the parable here, in his heart. Jesus is in the habit all throughout the Gospel of Matthew of identifying salvation and its fruits and its work because salvation and its fruits and its works are inseparable. They're distinct. We don't earn our way into heaven, but those who are truly saved will work out their salvation in fear and trembling because God is working in them, just as we discussed today in Sunday school class. If you belong to Christ and are bitter, holding on to a grudge, finding it completely unable to forgive. It shows that at the very least, there is some aspect in your life where you are blocking the effect of the gospel in your heart. If you find it impossible to forgive at all, you might be kidding yourself and perhaps do not believe the gospel. What Jesus is saying that those who receive God's justifying forgiveness will have sanctifying forgiveness. Those who are forgiven will become forgiving people. Not completely, not perfectly, always struggling, but truly able to be identified as compassionate, releasing, forgiving people. If you belong to Christ, you and I, we follow a man who was brutally and unfairly murdered. And instead of railing at his executioner's as he was crucified, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Jesus pleads forgiveness for those like you and I who do not understand or acknowledge the extent of our sin. He pleads forgiveness for those who murdered him. If he treats his executioners that way, how can you and I nurse grudges or be harsh with people? We must remember the love of God manifested for us on that same cross. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. And if you internalize that, if you grasp that by faith, it will humble you out of your bitterness because you know that you also are a sinner that lives by the sheer mercy of the king. But it also exalts you out of your bitterness because you can say, I'm adopted. I'm justified in Christ. Yes, even if someone 
hurts me, maybe I will confront them, but nothing in this world can take away my deepest joys and my greatest satisfactions that I have in him. I have no reason to be bitter. I can be honest, but I don't have to pretend like I'm losing something irreplaceable. Friends, that gospel that Jesus paid your debt, if you receive it deeply, will change your heart. And Jesus here says that it must. Let's pray and ask God to do that in us. Father, we thank you that you have canceled our debt, that you have let us go free, that Jesus came and voluntarily suffered on our behalf your awful wrath against our sin and rose from the dead and has provided your Holy Spirit to renew us, to give us clean hearts, to walk in your ways by your power in joy and in gratitude. Lord, we pray that you would make us grateful people. We pray that you would make us tender and compassionate people. Lord, we pray that you would make us forgiving people, even as you have forgiven us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.